And as you're being seated, if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. We are going to be covering two chapters today in our study of Genesis. Yes, two chapters of Genesis. I promise you, you will still get to lunch on time, however. As we will be taking a, an overview look at this at these two chapters. What we will do is I will read chapter 7 now. We will go over what we're going to see in Genesis 7, and then I will read chapter 8 uh, in the midst of the sermon uh, so we can keep all of these things in mind. I know that's a lot to keep in mind if we would just read it at the beginning. So again, we here in Genesis chapter 7, and listen carefully because this is God's word that is for you. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of the clean animals and of the animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, it's over 20 feet. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. 
He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing as we look at this passage together. Oh Lord, we have before us a terrifying passage. A passage that tells us that you keep your word, whether it is a gracious promise or whether it is a terrifying judgment. I pray that you would help us to look at this text and appropriately tremble that we would look at this text and see that your mercy means something and that your grace is significant in light of your justice. Oh, help us to see what you have for us in your word today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't have to tell you that looking in our news feeds on our phones or the nightly news on our televisions, that the world is in a bit of chaos right now. And I think one of the hardest things that we have to deal with when looking at all of this crisis, not only seeing the scale of human suffering, but just this overwhelming feeling of helplessness. What do you do when you see the world falling apart like this? And we often hear it said that it's like, oh, well, if things like this keep up, we see the moral degradation in our society. We see these wars coming to us, the lack of thinking in our world, that all of this is going to invite the judgment of God. And in one respect, yes, they're correct. There is one final day of judgment coming, as Jesus tells us about in Matthew 24. But what we are actually seeing right now is the judgment of God. We've long since turned away from what God has told us to do. We've long since become apathetic to what the Lord has commanded to us. We've long since abandoned righteousness, which as we saw yesterday, was the adherence to a standard, following the rules that God has given to us. We've long since abandoned that. And what we see is the results of that. In fact, Paul warns us about that in Romans chapter 1, where those just keep wanting to pursue the opposite of what God commands them. And so God, in a terrifying moment of judgment, says, okay, you want to live this way? Let's see how far that gets you. And what we find is that's not being turned over to freedom, but being turned over to slavery. Slavery to sin that does not care about you, did not die for you, and does not provide for you. And that's what we've seen here in Genesis chapter 6, that this is exactly what man wanted. It was a place of violence and evil. So the Lord says, fine. Do you want chaos? Here's what chaos really looks like. So now we have an interesting opportunity here in Genesis chapter 7, is we get to see what does a righteous person do in the middle of God's judgment? 
How are we supposed to react when there is chaos in our world? Because whether we think we deserve it or not, we're along for the ride. If there's war, if there's disease, if there's bad management in our halls of government, those of us who are Christians are along for the ride. And so was Noah, quite literally, along for the ride. He's in the boat with the waves. And he is not spared an interruption to his life. As we'll see, the waters here, on, here are prevailing on the earth 150 days, and it will take at least 150 more for all of the water to dry out. So he's along for this for a while. How did Noah react? And how does this inform how we're supposed to react under similar conditions? So that's what we're going to see in our two points today of what Noah did. First, is that God was his only hope. And so he is with us. God is still your only hope, even in the midst of judgment. And the second point is that the proper response to judgment is not worry, but it's worship. And that's what we're going to see here in chapters 7 and 8. So let's get in. As we see here in Genesis chapter 7, we see the Lord Yahweh is talking to Noah and says, Go into the ark, for I have seen that you are righteous. And here what this is talking about, this is not saying that Noah was without sin, but it does mean amongst the people that were surrounding him, he adhered to God's standards. This is an act of grace from God, just like it is for all of us. And in James, it tells us that good works are a display of the grace that's been done inside the heart. And that's what we're seeing here with Noah. And we see that again and again in the Bible that Noah did all that God commanded him. And he did all that he commanded him. And he did all that he commanded him. That's the call for us. Is that how we get to heaven? No, of course not. We get to heaven because of the righteousness of Christ. But this doesn't mean that he doesn't call us to a new life, to something different. And that's what he calls for us here. And here he is sent in to this ark. Now, you may notice, if you're listening closely, that there's something different here in this passage than what we're used to hearing about all the, about all the animals going in two by two. But here we have them going in seven by seven with the clean animals. Now, this is interesting in that the clean animals would have been used later on. Remember, this is being written to a people who are Jewish, who've just come out of Egypt, who are going to live a new life under the Mosaic Covenant, a list of rules that God is going to make to make, keep his people separate from the rest of the world, which would include how they would eat and what they would sacrifice. Clean animals to eat and sacrifice. And look at how the Lord has already been providing for them. This takes place a thousand or so years prior to the people walking out of Egypt, and already the Lord is saying, I've made sure you have enough clean animals. I've made sure you've got something to eat. I've made sure you've got something to sacrifice because you're going to need it. And is making these provisions even in the midst of his worldwide judgment. God's thinking about his people thousands of years from now. Now, what's also interesting here in verse 3 is that there's seven pairs of birds that are going in as well. 
We don't get seven pairs of bugs or anything else, really. But this particular category has been set aside. And this is where paying attention in the book of Leviticus is helpful. Because what you'll find out is instead of having a lamb or a goat to sacrifice for your sins, some of the people of Israel were too poor to have lambs for their sacrifices. So the sacrifice for the poor people were birds. So here the Lord is not only thinking about his people, not only thinking about the sacrifices, but is keeping in mind those that are most often ignored and making sure that the poor still have access to him and have access to this sacrificial system. All the way back here, God is providing for his people. So now as we go along, we find out that the Lord is going to blot out everything on the earth. And you've heard me, if you were listening to this, you probably thought, did he go back and reread a section here in the chapters? We're hearing Noah going into the ark, and then a few verses later, he's, he's going back into the ark. We've heard about him blotting out all things, and here he is blotting out all things. Remember when we were talking about with Genesis, whenever the narrative slows down, whenever it repeats itself, it really wants to make sure that you're paying attention. This is the instant replay of the Bible, letting you know this is important. The Lord is providing salvation for his people just as he promised. That he's made a covenant with his people. That's why it uses his covenant name, that the Lord shut them in. He's he's holding up his promise. Even in the midst of the end of the world. Just like that great philosophical school, REM, has said that it's the end of the world as we know it. But yet we can still feel fine. Because the Lord is providing for us. That's what is making sure of this mentioning over and over again. And here in Noah's life, and notice we get down to the day. If we could remember exactly what calendar they were using, we might be able to pinpoint what day it was in our calendar for the flood. It's a very specific moment. And as one commentator points out, all these other flood narratives that we see around here, the Mesopotamian flood narratives, There's no specific date tied to them. But this one is, because this is real. This happened on a real day. Monday or Tuesday, perhaps. A real time in history where this really occurred. And this is important for us to remember, because we know this is how God has worked in the world before. Causes us to give him respect. But again, the point that is emphasized over and over again is God's care for his people, calling Noah and his family into the ark, like Matthew Henry said, like a tender father calling in his children because he sees a storm coming. This is the care of the father. And so now everyone has been brought in to the ark. And all of these waters are coming in, not just from above, but from below. It's this really violent explosion is what's being talked about when the fountains of the deep are breaking forth. This is terrifying amount of water. And it's destroying everything. 
going up all around the world, every mountain that's under heaven, I think that's a pretty clear planetary-wide flood here, covering all of the mountains. Total destruction. But yet it's bearing up the ark. Again, following from Matthew Henry, is the same things that are working out as God's judgment are the same things that are protecting his people. The Lord is able to do a lot, even in the midst of judgment. What's destroying the rest of the world is what is saving the rest of his people. And so here it is that everything here is blotted out. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the idea of blotting out has the idea of completely wiping off something off of a plate. For those of you that are good and fill up your dishwashers and do a little pre-rinse first, it's getting everything off of the plate. And that's the thing here. The Lord is wiping the plate of the earth clean. Not to say that it's flat, but I've got to say that now. But it's just all of that has been blotted away. And if we were to leave off here, we wouldn't get the full picture of what God is doing until we get here to chapter 8. And I'm going to read chapter 8 for you now. Chapter 8, verse 1, says, But God remembered, we're going to keep track of that word, hang on to that. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In these six hundred And first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out 
and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So here in chapter 8, we're being given a wonderful conjunction, and that is but. But God. Always a change to the mathematical equation. You can have all the things happening, but if God moves, things will change. That's exactly what we see here. And it says, but God remembered Noah. Now, the word remember, the way that we typically use it, means is we forgot something, and then our phone reminded us, or we saw something, and we remembered, oh, we have to go do this thing. That's not what this is talking about here. God did not forget about Noah, and then say, oh, last I left them, they were floating. I got to do something about this. That's not what it means. What remember means is to say, I have made a promise, and now I'm about to act on it. I've said I'm going to do something, and now I'm going to do it. That's what the Bible means when it says that God remembered something. Something's about to happen. And exactly that's what we see in, Rome, in Romans. <laughs> Genesis chapter 8 we see that he remembers everyone that's here, the promises that he's made. And then we know, notice, that the Lord is bringing about the same deliverance just as he was bringing the destruction, as Matthew Henry put it. He's causing this wind to blow and is starting to push the waters down. He's taking an active part in putting the world back together. And in fact, you should probably notice, if you you literary minds, notice back in Genesis chapter 1, we've seen a wind or a spirit hovering over the waters before, haven't we? This is recreation. We're separating water from land again. We're about to bring creatures back out onto the earth with the same command to go forth and multiply. Even Catastrophe, as one of my professors once said, catastrophe does not interrupt God's desire to bless the world. Even God's own judgment does not block his desire to bless his creation. Does that change how you view God? So many of us think that God's just here to zap those that are doing wrong. He's just here for the judgment. It's not true. He's there in the good times. He brings those. 
We'll often ask, where was God when there is an earthquake or a major catastrophe, whether personally or nationally? But we never stop to say, man, where was God in this beautiful day? We don't have to, because he's right there. He brings all of that. That's why it's important for us to continue to keep our hope only in God. Because we're not waiting for a Savior from our Savior. He's going to bring healing and deliverance. And that's why we can say with the psalmist, I lift up my eyes to the hills, answer, asking the question, from where does my help come? The answer is my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, the one who drowned heaven and earth, and the one who dried it back out again. This is the Lord in which we serve. And this is why we can trust him. Some commentators had noted, as we saw earlier on when Noah was born, that he had a play on words with his name that Noah had meant rest or sounded like the word for rest. That, he's, that Noah's going to bring this for us. And here we find that the ark comes to rest. Not, probably not how Lamech thought it was going to be. But here the world has been brought rest as the ark lands here in the mountains of Ararat. Now, this is a, a side note, probably something I wouldn't have brought up, but one of the things that is often done for us is we try to find the boat, the ark, and, we've, and there's been several claims that it's been standing on Mount Ararat. Now, those conclusions have been going on since the early 1900s. Um, this is something I probably wouldn't have mentioned except it was in the news again this past week, not in Answers in Genesis, but in Popular Mechanics. Uh, there has been a, a, another fresh claim that we have found in this, the area of Mount Ararat, uh, seafood and marine materials, as they've called it. Now, this is something that has been found and has been then seen as inconclusive over and over and over again. Would it be cool to find the ark? Yes. Yes, it would. Is it necessary to find the ark in order to back up the claims that the Bible has given to us? And the answer is no. The word of God is authoritative whether we find a 5,000-year-old piece of wood up in the mountains of Ararat or not. So I want us to, to make sure and not be caught in the waves of up and down. It was just like, oh, Christianity's finally been proven. It was just, it's, it's already been. It's, it's right here. It's in the word. And that's what we hold on to. So, it's a side note. We had to talk about it because it was in the news. But anyway, back to our message and what we really want to take from this. And I really want you to focus here in verses 20 and following because that's what we're going to take a look in in our second point is that the proper response to judgment is worship. And here you can see Noah is being rather extravagant. And that he is taking one of every clean animal and offering it up as a burnt offering to the Lord. And every clean bird. Y'all, worship for this is a lot of work. It is difficult to hoist these animals up onto an altar. This is part of the reason why the Levites, those that would have been helping in the temple, were retiring at 50. Because this is a physically exhausting work to worship the Lord. 
But this is what he does and offers this up as a burnt offering. This means that Noah doesn't consume any part of this. Noah doesn't get to use any bit of this animal, which for us who are not as dependent directly on animals as it was then, we don't see the sacrifice of what that is. Be like giving up an entire month's paycheck. You can't use that anywhere else. That's a sacrifice. This is what he's doing. Like, the animal population has not been put back yet. He hasn't built a house. He's sending this time sacrificing completely all of these animals. And this is what the Lord accepts. It says here in verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this is when he says, I'll never again curse the ground. This is an offering of atonement. Now, this doesn't mean that God was impressed by the series of animals. And I was like, oh, well, I guess Noah is serious. I guess I have to do something now. That's not what it's saying. This is a gracious accepting of that. That's what we read in Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats is not final. It's waiting until this offering for Christ, which we'll get to in just a second. And here the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground. Now, the word that he's using, curse, here is not the same word that he was using in Genesis chapter 3. So he is not lifting Adam's portion of the curse here in this moment. He's just saying, I'm not going to add to the curse of the ground. We know this because Paul mentions it in Romans chapter 8, that all of creation is still groaning from this day until now, which is what Paul was talking about back then. So the curse of the ground is still here. But he's just not going to put on further in this same way again. And he's not going to do this, not because man doesn't deserve it. That's what he says. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for, or even though, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So this is not because humanity managed to get its act together. As we will see, even Noah loses the road here in the next chapter. So it's not because of that. It's because of God's mercy. He's not going to destroy the world as he does. But there is something here in verse 22. It says, while the earth remains. It's letting us know there is going to be a time in which the world will end. Jesus tells us about that, that it will be just like it was in Noah. Everything's fine, everything's going along one day after another, and then suddenly, the judgment comes. We need to be prepared for that. But for the, but for the time being, he is not going to crush the world again. Now, what should surprise us is not the fact that he doesn't crush the world. But what should surprise us is who is going to get crushed in its place. The world is going to be spared because God the Father is going to crush his own son for us. All of the judgment that should be poured out on us because, again, our 
intentions of our heart are evil from our youth. He's going to crush his son instead, who every intention of his heart was righteous from his youth. And that's something we don't think about. We talk rightly about the sacrifice that the Son, Jesus Christ, has done on our behalf. Dying on the cross, taking all of the wrath of God onto himself. But we don't talk about the sacrifice of the Father. Anyone who has lost a child can tell you what that's like. This is a sacrifice that he is making. Not just in whom he is withholding judgment from in the time being, but whom he is going to pour it out on instead. That's our Savior. But you know what else is interesting? I heard this from a pastor's name is Neil Stewart. Heard this probably 12 years ago. I still think about it very often. Out of Psalm 22, he was preaching. We were talking about what the proper response to judgment is, is worship. What was Jesus doing when he was on the cross? Bearing all of God's wrath and judgment for us. Ever thought about that? The significance of what he was saying? My God, my God, why has you forsaken me? Those are very specific words. You know where that's coming from? Israel's hymn book, the Psalms. While Jesus is on the cross paying for your sins, enduring all the wrath of God, he is worshiping. The Father. That is what your Jesus did. How can we expect us to do any less? Now you'll notice the worship that he's offering out of Psalm 22 is not particularly happy. It's a lament. But that is still worship. It's crying out to God who is currently crushing him. Because he knows that that's the only hope that we have. The original writing in Psalm 22, when David is writing this, he is saying, you're my only hope. Even if I feel abandoned by you, I have nowhere else to turn. I think that's what we need to take away from this passage. I know a lot of you are going through a lot of very difficult things. And there really is no hope for you outside of the Lord. There really isn't. When we turn on the news, our hope is not that finally some politician will finally write some sort of law that will finally put the world together. It's not coming. We look to science, and it's not coming either. We look to technology, and it's honestly making us worse than it was before. None of these things are hope. Even yourself, the things, the experiences that you've acquired, the things that you've done to shore up your life, that's not where you find hope. That you look to the one who even when he brings trouble into your life, you say, you're the only one that I can hope for. You're the only place where I find it. So I'm going to stay with it. Noah was waiting a long time for those waters to go away. It was a very slow, gradual process. The Lord could have snapped all the waters out of the way. 
He could have split it like he did the Red Sea. But he doesn't. It was slow. But it was sure. That's what he does for us today. We're on the boat. And we're waiting. In fact, that's actually part of the symbolism behind this church structure. All these wood panels are meant to remind us of a boat. We're waiting. We're floating. But the Lord is going to bring you rest. I know it doesn't feel like it now. That's the effects of sin. The world hurts. It hurts a lot. But your only hope is still Christ. He is going to bring you to rest if you are in him. So if you're here today and you have never put your faith in Christ, if you have never recognized that you are a sinner and that judgment should be poured out on you, but he's poured it out on Jesus on your behalf. And by faith, you say, I need this. Will you forgive me of this and turn and follow him? If you've never done that, today is the day. Don't delay. At some point, the door of the ark was shut. And someday, the door of your life is going to be shut. It's uncomfortable to talk about. But this is too serious not to. We send out emails reminding you about the end of daylight savings time. So you're not late. We would be remiss if we were to say, you got to take care of your soul. This is real. You need to deal with this. You need to get right with Jesus. What's holding you back? Is it something in the world? A family member in your life? What's keeping you from fleeing God's judgment? Ask yourself, is this worth it? I can answer it for you. The answer is no. Not going to pretend following after Jesus is easy. It wasn't easy for Noah. But I'm telling you, it's essential. You have to come to him because he's gracious and he's good. Life will not be easy. But one day the boat will come to rest. One day we'll be pulled out into a new world, cleansed from sin completely, where we can love and follow him forever. I hope that's true for you. And if after all this you're saying, I'm still not sure, please come see me afterward. Or if today can't work, make a time. I will find the time. This is too important to leave aside. Get right with him today. Get into that ark. Embrace your Savior who loves you even in the midst of judgment. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this time that we have been able to spend together today, looking, yes, at the horror of judgment, but also at the wonder of your grace. Lord, I pray that every person here will have heard that call, that they would run to you for grace and salvation. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.